Hi, I'm Dr. Yami of Veggie Doctor Radio, and I'm this week's plantastic guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Let us talk about veggies for a minute. Okay, Wendy, how have you been? I won't beat around the bush, but it's been busy and I've been living on the veg. Oh, Wendy, you really need to spoil <laughs> down. How about a few jokes? Why did the vegetable cross its legs? I don't know, Kev. Why did the vegetable cross its legs? Because it had to take a leak. <laughs> Holy shiitake, Kev. You're a real fun guy. What do you name a vegan post-punk band? Hmm, let me get this one. Satan, Satanic? No, it's Soy Division. Oh, right. They sing Beans to an End, don't they? Or is it Love Will Pair Us Apart? No, wait. It's Love Will Tear Us A Fart. Shucks, can I be any more corny? <laughs> I can't believe you said the word shucks. But yes, you clearly lost control. But let us move on to this week's guest, who is pretty cool beans, I'll just add. It's Dr. Yami Kozola Lancaster, or Dr. Yami, as she's known. Dr. Yami is the host of the Veggie Doctor radio podcast. Dr. Yami is definitely the first podcasting pediatrician that we've hosted on Metapod. She's based in the state of Washington in the U.S., and she's also a lifestyle medicine physician and health and wellness coach there. She's written a book titled A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Dr. Yami is incredibly passionate about plant-based nutrition and lifestyle habits for optimum health and wellness. Her Veggie Doctor Radio podcast offers listeners a weekly infusion of plant-based nutrition, lifestyle habits, and mindset to live your best life possible. There are more than 180 episodes featuring conversations with experts on health, medicine, and wellness, as well as episodes devoted entirely to plant foods and their nutritional profiles and health benefits. Dr. Yami is friendly, enthusiastic, and welcoming, and her show is accessible to anyone with an interest in nutrition and habits for health. She's also quite funny, but let's start the tape. Dr. Yami, welcome to Metapod. Thank you so much for joining me and Kevin to talk about Veggie Doctor Radio and, well, veggies. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure and we're having so much fun already, so I can't wait to delve into more. <laughs> Very good. We thought we could start by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about your own plant-based journey and how maybe that led to Veggie Doctor Radio. Sure. Well, I have been vegan and plant-based now for over 10 years, and I decided to try a plant-based diet on a whim. It, I feel like it was maybe divine intervention. I was reading a book called Born to Run, which is about barefoot running. I was just starting my long distance running journey at the time. And so I was exploring the barefoot running thing. And in that book, they talk about a group of indigenous people in the Mexican desert called the Tara Umara, also known as the running people. And they run as part of their culture. It's like the coolest thing. They just run, but they're also very calm. So it's very, that was very alluring to me. And it just happened to be that they subsisted on a predominantly plant-based diet. And the reason is, is because the location of where they live makes it difficult to access animal products. So they were eating corn and rice and beans and predominantly plant-based, but they were these like super athletes, you know, they like ran and ran and ran and they were calm and just seemed like so cool. And also in that book, they talked about this champion ultra marathoner, who's an ultra athlete called Scott Jurek, who also is vegan. 
And they talked about his diet a little bit in the book. And it just got into my brain like, wow, that's not something that I ever considered as part of my medical training and what I've learned through my medical education as something that not only is safe, but can also maybe improve or support athletic pursuits. Like you just think of, you know, <laughs> what you learn about vegetarianism, veganism, you think of all these weaklings and, you know, they can't lift anything and you wouldn't think that they're running hundreds of miles and they're strong. And so it just got into my brain that I just wanted to try it because I was curious. I was curious about how it would feel. And I really didn't have any expectations. I just love experimenting with things like that. And three days into my journey, something that I did not expect is that my chronic constipation that I had had for over three decades of my life was cured. And I did feel very energetic and I did feel a bit calmer. As you can see, I'm a high energy person and I have lots of ups and downs in my emotions and my personality. I felt like it helped stabilize me and I just felt really good. And so a few days into it, a week into it, I just had to learn more about this because it just was not part of my understanding of how we were supposed to think about vegetarianism and veganism. Mm -hmm. And one book, one documentary after another, by the end of the month, I was sold and there was no turning back for me. And that's been over 10 years now. And it wasn't until a few years later after that, because Veggie Doctor Radio just turned four years old this last month, okay. that I had the idea of starting a podcast. I had been doing YouTube and doing videos. I love being on video. I love okay. you know performing. I love all that stuff. But the problem with video is you have to dress up and you have to put the makeup and you know you have to make sure you have somebody hold the camera and and I had that at the time but it was just a big ordeal and it just took a long time and it was sometimes stressful and I just came to podcasting because I felt like it was more accessible to do it on a routine regular basis I didn't necessarily have to have makeup on at the time I was just audio now of course I record audio and video so it's a little different <laughs> but it was just more accessible and it was easier for me to stay consistent with my content. And I just needed a platform. I needed a platform to be able to talk about plant-based nutrition, my experiences, interview guests, and have this information reach a bigger audience. Yeah, I have to get Kevin to start wearing makeup, I guess, on Metapod. <laughs> <laughs> so despite the name Veggie Doctor Radio, you talk about a lot of things besides veggies. And yes. I'm just wondering, what is in your practice or experience one of the most surprising things to people that's connected to well-being or just general health that's not actually food or, or veggies? You know, we're at a place in our culture, especially in Western culture, where we've lost touch of all the lifestyle habits and behaviors that help us reach well-being. I don't know if I can answer what's most surprising. I'll just say that it's very common to have several well-being habits that are not optimized. The primary one probably being sleep. People neglect their sleep. It's like the first thing that goes. You know, if you have too much to do or if you, you know, I think they call it revenge, revenge um people when they stay up late, you know, I forget what it's called exactly, but they're working so hard and they don't have time to de-stress. So they just stay up late to watch movies and do things because they feel like they don't have enough time for themselves. So sleep is the first thing that goes. I think most people know they probably should move their bodies, but a lot of people don't realize that movement is so important to our longevity and to our health. And a lot of people associate exercise with weight loss or to have a certain physique or to be toned, but it's so, so, so much more than that. So I would say that, I don't know if people are necessarily surprised. I think it's just very common that the majority of people don't have very many lifestyle habits and behaviors in place that they feel are optimized. And you referred earlier to maybe not having been aware of or thinking about nutrition is, is part of your medical education. Maybe that's not quite what you were saying, but 
Why isn't nutrition a big part of medical education? So there are some medical schools that don't teach nutrition at all. And the majority maybe have one or two hours of nutrition education in your whole medical school curriculum. And it's not because medical training is bad. It's just because that's not the purpose of medical training. If you look at what a doctor does, a doctor goes in, diagnoses a problem and can give you a few options, including medication or surgery or refer you on to a subspecialist. So medicine is more fix the sick thing or fix the thing that's broken rather than how do we prevent the thing from getting broken in the first place. And also we just aren't taught how to use lifestyle as a way to repair and as a way to reverse disease. Because I think the feeling or the belief has been that is not powerful enough, that we need something that comes in a pill bottle. We need something, we need a scalpel. We need something aggressive Mm -hmm. in order to do something that's significant enough to restore or repair or reverse a disease. That's starting to change. And now medical schools, there are several medical schools across the country that are integrating nutrition and lifestyle medicine into their curriculums. And the good news is that medical students are so hungry for this. So I have so many students that are wanting to work with me because they want to learn these principles before they're done with their training so that they can apply them to their patients. And as physicians, I'll tell you, the physicians that have learned about this, that they've learned about the power of nutrition, they've learned about the power of lifestyle habits, they're so much more satisfied as physicians because you see change and you're able to make change in your patients sometimes even better than just using the traditional medication approach that we usually do as physicians. I guess on the other side of that, what are some of the unrealistic expectations that people have about what nutrition can do for them? I honestly think that not enough people realize that nutrition is as powerful as it is. Okay. I think that's the main problem. Most people have no clue. Most people have no clue that some people are able to reverse their diabetes in 10 days with a change of diet. Is type two diabetes, obviously type one diabetes, you can't reverse yet with our technology. But a, a lot of people would not realize they, they don't feel that changes in their habits can be that powerful. And they are, I mean, we can see within a couple of weeks, people's blood pressure come down with a change in diet, diabetes, heart disease, all of those things we can either slow down and arrest or even start to reverse with diet alone. I think where people go wrong is not just looking at the basics, but trying to see food as very black and white and like the bad guy. And so where I see this is people coming in, maybe they don't have their habits and their behaviors optimized. They're not sleeping. They're stressed out. They're not exercising. Okay. None of that's working. And they come in they're like, I think it's gluten. I think I need to eliminate gluten. And I'm like, how about we try to sleep first? (laughs) You know, it's probably not gluten, you know? Um, And so that's where I think people get a little bit confused with nutrition, that they think it's like this one culprit in their diet. And sometimes it is, but the majority of the time, it's that we need to look at it more on a broad perspective. How do we eat more plants, more whole plant foods, more fruits and vegetables? How do we optimize our sleep, our exercise, minimize our stress or manage our stress? And that is what leads to the well-being and health that people desire. Hello there, it's Kevin here. So um, often having good well-being is seen as being very black and white. You're either very, very good and look after yourself or you're not. And, you know, it is all a journey. And I wonder whether you would admit to us now whether you still have some bad habits. Oh, yeah, I'm human. And I think that (laughs) that is a that's where we can go wrong. And especially this is very American. It's very American that you're either on or off and you're either like the best at something or you're going to, it's all or nothing, you know? And I talk about one of my favorite things to talk about is called life editing. I'm a human. 
Right now, I am so involved with my practice, growing my practice and integrating new technologies. So during that time, when I get really busy with something, some of my habits might fall off. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite foods in the world is donuts. I eat vegan donuts, but I love donuts. Okay. So I'm not just eating broccoli and stuff like that, but I encourage people to every, you know, every month or every quarter or something like that, sit down and be like, okay, where are my habits right now? What do I want to work on optimizing for the next month or three months? What's kind of fallen off that I really want to get back? What's not that important this month? And know that it's it's dynamic. It's a flow. It's a process. It's not all or nothing. And when we expect it to be all or nothing, we end up at the nothing. You know, yeah. we push hard for two weeks. And they're like, oh, it's not working. So I'm just not going to do anything. And then we end up back at square one. Are there three non-plant-based foods that you really miss? Well, I have to admit what I miss the most and I still sometimes dream about is eggs. Okay. I used to love eggs. And I think I'm naturally, uh, I don't love meat. I never was a meat person. Like I'm not the kind of person that would crave a steak. It was never, that was never me. But I did love eggs. And I love dairy, but dairy, I don't crave at all because there's so many great plant-based alternatives that are better or equal to dairy. And so I feel like I can get my dairy fix. And there is one product now called Just Egg that you can do a scramble of that's very, very close to real egg. And so we buy that maybe twice a month and make some scrambles and it's really good. But but I do, I miss egg. <laughs> but besides that, I don't, I don't really miss anything else. Not even dairy cheese. This, no, because uh, this, this is where the full disclosures come in because I, know, I miss see, cheese a lot. <laughs> I'm unusual because I would say the majority of people, when they say they can't go plant based, even though they have a desire to, their number one fear is cheese. <laughs> but I was never a cheese person. I, ne- I never liked cheese because I don't love the flavor of fermented things. So I don't like that sourish thing. I don't like, I've never liked cheese. I was a milk person and an ice cream person. Like I could have like gallons of milk on my own when I was growing up, <laughs> I would have milk with my meals and stuff like that. But now that uh, that's not a problem. And cheese was never a problem, but I can understand how some people have that pool and allure to cheese. There's actually a chemical reason for that. The protein, the main protein in cow's milk is casein. And right. when we ingest that casein, in our brain, it crosses the blood brain barrier and it transforms into casomorphine. And so I see that as a pediatrician too. little kids who, once they get on cow's milk, they almost get addicted to it because it gives you a little bit of that feel good, you know, a little bit addictive. And then also cheese is really high in fat. And as humans, we are wired to love fat because fat is very high in calorie density and it equals survival. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I've been a vegetarian for 21 years. And for the vast majority of that time, I always used to say in a very cliched vegetarian way, I really miss bacon. That was the one thing that I often said that I miss. But interestingly, since I, I've been a vegan for nearly two years, and it's now cheese is the one that, you know, it's it's calling me from the fridge every now and again. But uh, yeah. it, it, it's interesting. And, you know, I, my, my, I wish my son would be addicted to milk he's addicted to his playstation which is another story entirely, but, you know. it's another lifestyle habit we can discuss in another episode <laughs> yeah indeed can you identify for us then what would be your go-to vegan dish and i'll give you two two options so one where you've got a chance time to sit down and prepare and make it and you want to make it look presentable and you've maybe got mm-hmm. some friends coming over for dinner and then your other go-to vegan dish for you've had the day from hell you're off a 15-hour shift and you come home and you before you slop down in front of the telly you need to make something what would be those two dishes okay i'll start with the fast meal first because this is literally my go-to since i do most of the cooking in my house and i also work and it's just going to be a veggie pasta so boxed dried pasta, okay, pasta sauce and veggies. And you just chop up those veggies or frozen too. Frozen is the ultimate fast food. It works really well. And I've made videos on this, 
the way you can do that is you put the pasta in the water in the last five minutes that it's cooking, put the frozen veggies in there. You can even put frozen peas in there with it, drain it all together, slop the sauce on it and you're good to go. <laughs> so that's yeah. my fast meal. And it's what I call an emergency meal because you can have everything either in the pantry or in the freezer and you can have extras so that even if you didn't plan that week, you can have a meal and you don't have to order out or any of that kind of stuff. Now, we'll admit that I'm an experimenter, as I said before. So if I have a dinner party, I'm never going to make the same thing twice, ever. I always experiment on my guests, which I know is like the number one thing to not do, but I can't help it because I want something new. I like novelty. But I love, I, I just love cooking. And I would say like my last dinner party that we had, we did Mediterranean and I had this huge Mediter Mediterranean spread where I made several dips like hummus. I homemade the pita bread myself, which that's very special when you have homemade pita bread that puffs up. Oh, so delicious. And a beautiful big salad with chickpeas and what else did I have on that one? Oh, of course, falafel. And then some yummy dessert that involves chocolate, usually some kind of chocolate mousse or chocolate pie. And anything that you can have as non-vegan, you can make vegan. So I never, I never fear that my guests are going to feel like they don't have, that they're not satisfied or they don't have what they want. Because all of my guests at dinner parties or when I have people over are always like astounded and just so happy. <laughs> are they mostly kind of vegetarians and vegans no so you're in maybe you're <laughs> so maybe you're yeah. introducing them to um some new meals as well right yes yeah and people are always surprised because you know that people are always under the impression that vegan mm -hmm. food is like cardboard or like what do you eat just salad you know like they have no clue that it can be so delicious and satisfying and that's what i love to do when i when i do the cooking and i was a food for life cooking instructor for 4 years and people were just always surprised at how delicious a simple vegan meal can be but also how satisfying i think people think they're going to be hungry and you don't have to be especially if you're properly designing your meals to include some of the higher calorie density foods like your legumes and your whole grains you can't avoid those if you're only eating fruits and vegetables you're going to be hungry because you have to eat massive amounts of those to get enough calories yeah so you said that you're the main um, feeder in your household or food preparer? And would it be fair to say that that responsibility falls mainly to, to women or, or mothers? And what do you see in your practice or in, among your family and friends about how uh, women and, and men prepare or feed? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, and I'm hoping that generationally that's going to change a little bit. So I'm Gen X and with my generation, I feel like it just came to me. I ended up being the cook of the home and my mm -hmm. husband never cooked growing up. He didn't know how to cook every once in a while. He might try to prepare something, but he just never learned. And so it just came to me. I love cooking. And so that was fine. As we got busier and I started to get resentful, like, Hey, I work too. And you work. I know that you work, but I also work. Can you start doing some of this? He started to cook only on the weeks where he's not too busy with work and <laughs> once or twice, <laughs> but he's learning. And so he, he's really slow, you know, and it reminds me of how, when you first start cooking, it can be frustrating because it takes you a long time, but I keep telling him to hang in there and be patient because as you get that experience, you get faster and you get more intuitive in the kitchen. Like most of the time I don't use recipes to cook. I'm not a recipe person. So I just throw things together and it, turns out beautifully, but you can't do that until you have some experience. And now I'm assigning my children. My boys are 12 and 16. They cook every Sunday, which is the best ever because they pick the recipe. I make sure I order the ingredients and I can sit back and relax, go for a walk, whatever. And they cook meals. I'm seeing in this newer generation, the younger parents, that the men are stepping up and taking more of that role and you're having more blurred lines in between, you know, the gender roles and things like that. So I'm happy about that. But what I still hear from moms a lot, and I'm not sure if moms are just saying this or it's true, but that the 
dads tend to be more of the processed food people, you know, so they're the ones that they want to bring in the chips, they want to bring in the sweets and And maybe it's just because these are the moms that are saying that because these are the moms that are very health focused and they're wanting to change the habits in the house and they're frustrated because their partner is different. So maybe that's what I'm, why I'm hearing that. And the majority of the time it's moms that bring the patients into the office. And so that's who I'm hearing from. So it could be one-sided who knows, but I, I am hoping, and I'm thinking that as things evolve, we will see that more men start cooking and get interested in health and health promoting foods and nutrition. Do you critique the kids and your husband's food? I mean, they do a really good job. And what I love about my kids cooking is that they pick recipes. I wouldn't pick. It's awesome. And so they'll send me the recipe and I'm just like, you know, in my head, I don't say this out loud. I'm like, Oh, are you sure? I don't know if that looks that good, but it's so good. It's just a different taste, you know? And so they're attracted to different things. I think that's the great thing about more than one cook in the family is that you're getting a different perspective on food. It's not just one person dominating all of the flavors, you know? And we know that children learn to like what they're exposed to. So if they're not exposed to a diversity and a variety of foods, they're not going to learn to like those things. And my husband, he usually picks a lot of Asian meals and he loves to cook with a lot of lemon and lime. And like I said earlier, I don't love like sour and tart things as much. So I'm learning to like that more, but sometimes (laughs) some of the stuff he cooks, I'm like, Oh, this has so much lime. And he's like, I know I love it. (laughs) And so there's some disadvantages to having him as a cook, but I'm grateful because it's one less day that I have to be preparing in the kitchen. It's, it's really fun. One of the things you talk about a broad concept, which I'm hoping maybe you could explain briefly for the listeners, um, is the idea of focusing on abundance and variety versus restriction when it comes yes. to a vegetarian or vegan or plant-based, however you want to call it, diet. Could you yes. talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, I love this because we were talking earlier about having this all or nothing mentality. So people feel like they can't be successful unless they're all the way in. So unless I'm hundred percent plant-based, I'm not going to be healthy, which is not true. The more whole plant foods you can include into your diet, the better. But then I hear a lot of people when they talk about vegan diets or plant-based diet saying it's so restrictive, isn't it? Isn't it so restrictive? And I got so tired of hearing this one day I sat down and I actually counted out how many different animals we ate. And I counted out, you know, what the typical American probably does and what the more adventurous American. And of course, people in different countries may eat different things. But when it comes down to it, the typical average American probably only consumes between eight or 10 different animals. Because some things, you know, like say cheese and milk, that's coming from a cow. That's the same thing. You know, it's prepared in a different way, but it's the same thing. When you look at the plant kingdom and how many plants are available to us, there's over 50,000. There's over 50,000 edible plants compared to eight to 10 animals that we eat. That's a lot. That's huge. That is, that is not restriction. It's just our mindset that's stuck on restriction and maybe culturally too, because culturally we only think about, okay, what meat are we going to eat? And then we put everything around that and it just becomes very same, very restrictive over time. But the standard American diet in itself might even be seen as a restrictive diet. You have to think outside the box. You have to shift your paradigm instead of thinking about not eating animals. How do I shift my perspective and instead start adding plants? I have never tried, say, like somebody might say, I've never tried oat groats before, or I've never tried an actual whole wheat, like kamut or something like that. There's so many foods that people have never heard of or never tried because they're stuck on the same. When they start including more of those whole plant foods, that is health promoting because it's going to be feeding their gut bacteria. It's going to be contributing to that microbiome, giving them all the different fibers and antioxidants and vitamins and nutrients that they may not be getting 
from some of the more processed and animal products, but they don't have to think about it as eliminating the animal products. Think about it as adding things. And over time, the more you add, it crowds out some of those other foods and you're eating less of those other foods, but it doesn't feel like it's a sacrifice, you know? What would you say is the most despised vegetable to people? (laughs) Okay, so in my cooking classes, one of the recipes I would do often was this bean salad that's so yummy, and it included lima beans. And as soon as I would say lima beans, I mean, people would grow and be like, I hate lima beans. But these are so good because I use the frozen baby lima beans. They're delicious. So I would say lima beans. And then the other one would probably be Brussels sprouts. And I love Brussels sprouts. It's one of my very, very, very favorites. But I think that people grew up eating like just boiled, overboiled Brussels sprouts that are like slimy and not good. But man, you cut those, you put some balsamic vinegar and, you know, you season them and you put them in the air fryer. It's like candy. So delicious. Kevin and I were saying that we're often hungry after listening to your episodes. Yes, <laughs> you should be. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you, um, sometimes vegans get a bit of a bad rap. So, you know, I'm paraphrasing a joke here. You always know a vegan because they'll tell you before they tell you your own name and all this kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, I wonder if, do you think they are getting treated less unfairly than they used to because you know it's become more of a mainstream theme and they're not seen as being kind of preachy or dare I say even annoying (laughs) and I you know I'm saying this from a a position of comfort of being one myself yes I think so I think that it is becoming more acceptable and more mainstream but Kevin you may be familiar with this phenomenon is whenever you first become a vegan and your worldview shifts sometimes you're angry and sometimes you're just unreasonable. (laughs) And you, even though you develop this compassionate compassion for animals and for this whole different way of thinking that you didn't before, suddenly you're less compassionate to other humans because you're frustrated and because you just want to make this change and you just want everybody else. You just grab people from the shoulders and shake them and be like, don't you see, you know? And so that usually wears off in maybe six to 12 months and you're a lot more reasonable and you're not as mean as you were at the beginning. But I think at the beginning, some of us probably deserve that because we just go in strong and I'm a bold personality. And so if I really believe in something, I want people to know about it. And when I first became vegan, I think I was a little harsh, you know? And then I I toned down because I saw how it was affecting people and I saw how they were reacting. But now I think there's a lot of people that maybe they're eating a plant-based diet, not for the ethical reasons, but maybe for environmental reasons or health reasons. And so they don't come at it all preachy like that. And so hopefully it's helping the rest of us that might be ruining the name for vegans at the beginning until we calm down. So I think that overall, we're not seen as as intimidating as we were before. Okay. That's interesting. Some some people might say I'm unreasonable and angry and annoying anyway, regardless of whether (laughs) I was eating meat or not. But something that is quite interesting is this kind of shift in the terminology. And I wonder if this has got something to do with it. And that is from vegan to plant-based. Is that something that is, do you think that's been a conscious effort by people like you, the food uh, manufacturing industry, the media, or is it kind of a combination of all of them, do you think? No, I think it has been a conscious thing. And that's why whenever I describe myself, I do label myself as vegan and I eat a plant-based diet because they're both important to me. And I want people to realize that I also eat this way for other reasons, not just my health and my well-being. But I would say a lot of people that eat a plant-based diet they don't consider themselves vegan and they're still afraid of that term. They're afraid of that label, what it might mean about them. And so I think that's completely acceptable, but now you're seeing the plant-based term become a very mainstream term. And you have to be careful because not everybody interprets it the same way. So if you're vegan or you want to make sure you're absolutely hundred percent plant-based and you see 
a product that says plant-based, you still have to read the ingredients list because something might be labeled plant-based and it might still have egg or dairy in it because Mm -hmm. that company is interpreting that term to mean mostly plants, not all plants. And it's not like some exact defined thing, you know, out there. And so the interpretation can be different for some people. And that's why I always advise people, if you're having somebody over and they describe themselves as vegetarian or plant-based, you want to ask them specifically what that means is what specifically do you not eat? Because you may interpret it incorrectly based upon the stereotype of that, but that might not be the way that they see it. Would you say that celebrity food personalities, and I'm thinking here of people like Jamie Oliver, um, Mm -hmm. Linda McCartney Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 80s, um, Moby, have they helped or hurt the common knowledge of plant-based diets? I think overall helped. I say that cautiously because obviously there's a lot of people that become vegan and are very passionate. And then they suddenly aren't vegan anymore. And then they're very passionate about why they're not vegan. (laughs) And then they have this huge stage and it can be really confusing. And of course, to the hardcore vegans, infuriating, right? But I would say for the most part, especially the celebrities that are eating more plants for their health, I think that's really helpful because it's saying to the population that follows them that, hey, it's cool to think about your health. It's cool to to think about what you're putting in your body. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Obviously, I'm 100% vegan for lots of different reasons, but I know that the majority of the country, the majority of the world is not going to be 100% vegan. But the more we can shift our diet towards plants the better it's going to be for all the different reasons, you know? So I just think of celebrities like Beyonce, you know, Beyonce is like super, super popular. And it's known that her family, they're really interested in this. They're interested in eating more plant-based. They're not vegan, but they're prioritizing plants. They're eating more plants. And I think things like that can be very, very helpful. Talk to us if you can then about your um, wider, perhaps if that's the right way of uh, calling it approach to plant-based products so do you also think about the clothing that you wear for example first part of the question the second part is about your wider behavior so do you travel by air do you what do you do around those kind of in the broader sustainability agenda great questions yes i am very conscious about my product choices makeup cosmetics our furniture my clothing But we've been on this journey for over 10 years. And at the beginning, I didn't have the capacity to change everything or the desire. So we used to have a full leather couch that now is in my pediatric office because I bought it and it's beautiful. And honestly, every time I pass it, I say thank you to the cows that were sacrificed to make my couch. But now we don't have a leather couch in our house anymore. Things like that, you know, and at the beginning, I wasn't going to change it right away. I still have a couple of pair of boots that are leather that I still wear that I've had for 20 years, but I keep them. I'm not going to get rid of them or try to replace them. Things like that. When it comes to my wider approach, this is very important to me. I'm my family and I, we practice minimalism. We practice as much sustainability practices as we can. All of that being said, we're human. I have two kids. Yeah, I'm a normal person and you do what you can and you try to prioritize what you can in life. So uh, I'll give an example of that. I was looking at reducing plastic in the bathroom. I think that's the hardest place for me and being a woman and, you know, I I love my skin, so got to take care of it. And I have like 50 bazillion products and I have curly hair. So curly hair, people have a lot of products and it was so much. I just was overwhelmed by how much plastic was coming in my house every month. And so slowly I started making changes. I, and one of the changes that I made is I replaced my toothpaste with those toothpaste tabs. So I use the product called bite and I actually love it. And I had everybody in my family try it. Nobody else liked it. And so they're like, (laughs) it was funny because 
I'm also, as you can see, a bold personality. So I'm like, guys, but it's the earth and, you know, all these toothpaste the tubes and you can, they're in the landfill. And then my older <laughs> son was like, you know what? I don't care about the environment that much. I want my toothpaste. <laughs> my heart's breaking. My husband was pretty much the same because I changed the deodorant to those refillable deodorant kinds. And he was like, this is where my sustainability environmental practices stop. I want my deodorant. So, you know, we, we do what we can and we make changes where we can. And little by little, we try to think about it. We love to travel though. And so I have a whole series on sustainability I do every year in April for Earth Day month. For us, we were just going to get on the plane. That's just very important for us. That's part of our values. That's what we do as a family. So one of the ways that we can balance that is by doing as much as we can in our day-to-day lives. I walk to work a lot of the times. My husband can walk to work. But also you can buy carbon offsets, you know, so that's another thing that you can do financially that's within your means to try to balance out all the the plane flights. But it's not ideal. And I realize that none of us is perfect and you just have to prioritize. You have to align with your values and do the best you can. Yeah, I mean, I'm a journalist and writes about the travel industry. So, you know, I'm not also not kind of preaching from a position of strength here. I, I hope after the toothpaste incident, your family cooked you a nice meal. But uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do want to ask, you said, um, and I think I'm just looking for a definition and some examples, really, you said we practice minimalism. And I'm not quite sure what that means. Okay. So basically, minimalism is a philosophy where you try to not consume as much. And there's different levels of minimalism. So there's literally some people in this world that practice minimalism that only own like 50 things or less. Like there are some minimalists that just have a back, they can put everything they own into a backpack. And that's like a very extreme minimalist. But what for what it means for us is that we're very conscious about what we buy. We don't buy things we don't need. We try to be conscious about like, say, if you go to a conference or you go to Costco or whatever, and they're handing out free things like paper, like goodie bags, we say no to those things so that we can bring less into our house and just live on less in general. We have a smaller house that makes a big difference for everything. Like the more, the more space you have, the more you have to heat and cool it and all those things. So we just look at ways that we can just reduce the, the amount that we consume every day. And every three months or so we go through the house and look for things that we no longer need or use. And we either donate them or sell them or somehow, you know, get rid of it in another way and just try to bring less into our house in general. Yeah. I don't know if it is, if there's a similar service in the Netherlands where Wendy resides or in the U S but we have a brilliant, uh, website here in the UK called free cycle. Mm-hmm. So if you if there's things that you no longer need and you don't want you you can't be bothered to put it, do the eBay thing you just put it on free cycles it goes to a good home and it you know and it kind of carries on from there it's great yes it's perfect to do that and to exchange things and even they have programs now where you can borrow tools instead of having to buy all the different tools and yeah. so there's all kinds of ways people are thinking about so that we can be more sustainable in our practices. I'm curious, and this maybe has two pieces, how research on nutrition and how industry may be influencing research or influencing other things about nutrition, if that's going faster now, or how fast does it go and how fast does it end up in the popular knowledge, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Because since I'm not a researcher myself, I consume research. I feel like in general for the plant-based world, there's more people doing research specifically with plant-based themes. So for example, there was one of the recent studies you may have heard about was where they did surveys to healthcare providers and were able to isolate the ones that were eating predominantly plant-based pescatarian or omnivorous diets and whether they got COVID and how bad the COVID was. And they found that of those providers that were plant-based, their 
subsequent risk of developing moderate to severe COVID was reduced by 73% and the pescatarians by 59%. So there's people looking at that stuff now so that we can see, okay, does this really make as much of a difference as we think? Is it just anecdotal or is it really happening? And so I do see that there's a lot more studies coming through that way. In general, those things take a long time to make it into medicine, though. So we usually say it takes about 20 years for Mm. doctors to learn it because Mm. like people like me, I've been practicing for 12 years now and you just get into your routine. You do your CMEs and stuff, but you usually do your CMEs and things that you're interested in. So unless a doctor is specifically interested in nutrition like I am, they're probably not going to hear about this stuff because it doesn't make it into the the news that doctors hear all the time. So we say it takes a while. So I would say in you know a couple of decades, more doctors will be aware of the power of plant-based nutrition and how important it is for just not only prevention, but also for reversal of disease. On the industry side, and maybe this is me mixing up a few things, but I know in the US, we used to have the food pyramid. Probably you have something in the UK or maybe you grew up with something like that. Yeah, definitely. How strong is industry now in shaping those governmental guidelines that we grow up with? It's stronger than a lot of people realize. And so we have a committee here in the United States that meets, I think, every five years to set the guidelines. And they use those guidelines to inform policy and to inform changes like in the schools and prisons and things like that of what they're going to feed kids and what they're going to feed people. It is composed of professionals, but they do have hearings. And in those hearings, I was asked to try to be a part of one of those. You go and you say why you think a certain thing should be changed for the plant-based people and for some physicians that I work with on the plant-based side, it's to try to eliminate the recommendation that you have to have dairy in order to get a spot in one of those hearings. You basically have to be on the computer right when it opens and do a mad dash to try to to try to get a spot. A lot of those spots are filled by industry. So it's going to be the dairy council. It's going to be the beef people. You know, it's going to be the pork people. They're all going to be there at the hearing. It's getting Beyonce tickets. It's really difficult. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's worse than that. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) but, you know, when you do get a spot to go, then you can, you can give your side of, you know, why you think something should change. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes a long time to make those changes because of industry. One of the examples was not this guidelines, but the previous one in the draft before, you know, they, they write the draft, then they have the hearings and then the official one is published. They had put a line or a couple, you know, a couple of lines or a paragraph about why we need to be eating more plants for the environment. Mm -hmm. And that was not going to work with the animal people, you know, the animal products people, because that doesn't look good for them. So that had to be taken out. Wow. What would you say might be the biggest change in nutritional understanding or or guidance in the next five to 10 years? And yeah, I'm wondering if there's a good change, but also maybe a, a negative change. I think the hottest topic and what's most you know, different than we've ever had before, what's more radical is going to be the research on the gut microbiome. We can't refute that, you know, because I think before we think about, we just have our bodies, it's just human cells and you eat something and it does something. But now that we realize that we are composed more of microorganisms than we are human cells. So they outnumber us by a factor of 10 and they do a lot of things for us, good and bad. It changes the game a little. It gives us another reason why we should eat plants because otherwise you could just see, okay, just get your macronutrients, all these animal products and processed food. As long as you have all the nutrients, you should be good, but that's not true. We really need to be eating fiber and the best place to get fiber is going to be from our whole plant foods. So I'm thinking that in the next five to 10 years is going to be the research on the gut microbiome and how important our gut is to our health. That's going to be the most dramatic change. We have a museum dedicated to microbes here in, in Amsterdam cool. called Micropia. 
And actually, I sent you a photo the other day, Kevin. It's like a a I microbe know. passing gas, actually. <laughs> it's <laughs> we'll put it on the show notes. So that's next, perfect. Next time you're in Amsterdam, you can visit. I think just an observation as we kind of come towards the end here is that, you know, if there's one thing that I've noticed over the last 20 years is just, you know, we've talked a lot about cooking at home and all those kind of things. Just eating out is a lot easier. Would you, is that, is that fair in your experience as well? I think it depends on where you are and uh, uh, for fear of stereotyping an entire nation, sometimes it might be difficult in France or Spain, I found to get vegan options, but certainly, you know, in London where I used to live, you know the the, op- the options that you can get in a restaurant now are infinitely better yeah. than they were five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. Yeah, London is almost too easy. Like there are some places <laughs> I wouldn't live because it's too easy to get vegan food. Like <laughs> I love Portland and I want to live there, but I would probably eat donuts way too often because dough donuts is like the best in the world. But I live in a small town in a rural area in central Washington, and even here it's been a lot easier lately than it was at the beginning when we first started our vegan journey. But I feel like there's some places like New York city, every place you go into, even if it's not a vegan place, they either have a separate little vegan menu or they have like all of these labeled options. It's like, you can just feel comfortable and free. You can go into any place with your friends and know that it's going to be fine. Yeah, the restaurant world has moved on, thankfully, from mushroom yes. risotto, which was yeah. <laughs> the, the, the standard vegetarian or vegan option. So we have two last things. The, the first one is I would just like to comment on the cartoon you on your podcast artwork, <laughs> which I think is so cute. And I'm just wondering if there's a story behind who who created that for you. So that was created by one of my friends who has done all of my logos up until now for like everything I do. So that's like the second version of the Veggie Doctor Radio logo. I don't know why I have a thing for being an emoji and (laughs) I live vicariously through my avatar. Like she's so adorable. And my podcast producer knows this and she helps me do like my slides for my presentations and stuff. So she'll just sneak my emoji in and some of my slides and I get so happy. And sometimes she'll be like flying in a plane or, you know, eating a broccoli or eating an apple or doing certain things. And I don't know. I just love it. (laughs) Well, I I invite listeners to go and look at it at your website. And there are four hidden or sort of hidden vegetables in in the artwork there mm-hmm. so try to put they, as many veggies in there as possible or plant some of my fruits <laughs> and um your your smile lends itself to an emoji i think so it's very nice <laughs> i'm cartoonish that would that would be the excellent <laughs> toothpaste <laughs> yeah see gleaming <laughs> So before we wrap up, we thought it would be fun to do a sort of quick food association game of sorts. Oh, man. Okay. And um, it's meant to be fun. And I think you'll be pretty good at this because usually you're good at this in your episodes. But uh, we're going to start with, I say, an animal-based food, and you could perhaps name a replacement for it. I can do that. And you can be as elaborate or simple as you would like. I know you often mention herbs and spices that you would put on things or how you prepare it. So here we go. Scrambled eggs. (laughs) Starting with eggs. So you can do tofu scramble, chickpea scramble, potato scramble, lots of veggies, use turmeric, and definitely add black salt if you want to have that eggy flavor, that sulfuric flavor. So black salt, you have to look it up. It's not actually black, it's pink. But you can scramble any of those veggies and add your turmeric, add your nutritional yeast, add your black salt, and you're good to go. Okay. Uh, Sausage. So many ways that you can go here. So lentils, mushrooms, walnuts, blend all of that together. Probably if you add like a little bit of brown rice or oats or something like that to kind of bind it, mm. a little bit of flaxseed, and then you can actually make your own sausage, but whole foods based even. Kevin's taking notes. <laughs> I really, I really am. Okay. <laughs> Cheese. 
Well, my go-to is cashews. I love cashews and they're so versatile. There's a lot of companies now that actually make their cultured plant-based cheeses with cashew as the base. I'll just give you my recipe for my favorite cashew cheesy sauce. It's addictive. So just be careful. <laughs> this makes yeah. a bunch so you can cut it down if you want, but I, I usually make a bunch so that, cause I use a Vitamix blender so I can make sure it blends well. Mm -hmm. So two cups of raw cashews, about a cup of salsa. You may need to add a little water in addition to that half a cup of nutritional yeast, and then add water to the consistency and then just blend it until it's nice and creamy. If you have a high powered blender, you do not have to soak your cashews. If you do not have a high powered blender, you wanna make sure you soak your cashews for at least four hours or overnight so that it can make it smooth. Delicious. And, and the last one in this round, uh, a Snickers bar. Oh, that's easiest. Okay, this is also addictive. So <laughs> dates. Medjool dates specifically. Have y'all eaten those before? It's literally nature's candy. I had never had a medjool date until I became vegan and I thought they were fake. They're so sweet <laughs> and they taste like caramel. Okay. So you get the medjool date, you take out the pit, you put in some creamy or chunky peanut butter, and then you either put in peanuts or almonds and you can get some melted vegan chocolate, roll it in there put it in their fridge or just let it set until, you know, let it sit on the counter until it's set and eat that. It tastes just like a Snickers bar, but way healthier. Wow. I've taken that to parties before. And I have to make sure that if I want some myself, I have to separate them beforehand because they're <laughs> gone like that. Keep a stash in the car rather than take it all in. Okay. So the final round is that um, we'll say a food, a, a vegetable, a plant, and we'll ask you to name or respond with a, a way to prepare it, or an accompaniment, like an herb, a spice. So if Kevin asks me about potatoes, mm -hmm. I would say roasted with olive oil and rosemary. Mm. So good. Kevin, can I ask you to, to answer some of these as well? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're pitting me against, you know, it's like me up against Michael Jordan in a Oh, my match. goodness. You can handle it. Okay. Dr. Yami, white potatoes. Well, the most recent thing I did was a potato leek soup. So delicious. So I pan fried the leeks. Then I boiled the potatoes with the leeks, use veggie broth, a little bit of soy milk. And then I actually also use rosemary with that one and a little bit of nutritional yeast. Good. It's simple. Delicious. Okay. Chickpeas. I'm going to go with roasted chickpeas. Okay. And my favorite way to season them is going to be smoked paprika, nutritional yeast, garlic powder, onion powder, a little bit of salt, toss it all together, and then put them in the air fryer. Make sure that they're not touching. There's plenty of space there. And then put it, you know, leave them in there until they're crispy. You might have to turn them once but they're like a crunchy, delicious snack. And we use them in tacos and on salad too. So yeah. What happens if they're touching in the air fryer? Do you end up with a giant well, chickpea? The, the way that an air fryer works, no, that would be delicious. Don't, we don't the have way that an air fryer works is that it uses air. So air has to circulate around. So you don't want to overcrowd it. Otherwise you're going to have soft spots. If you want it to be nice and crispy, you want everything to be spread out. Okay, so an even crispiness yes not a giant chickpea no i can't compete with any of this so i'm gonna i'm gonna avoid trying to make myself look really daft okay the good dogs are here it's all you um, dr yummy it's fine <laughs> uh let's go with spinach okay spinach i'm gonna go with a smoothie with spinach uh, one of my favorite smoothies is going to have soy milk blueberries frozen banana, throw the medjool dates in there for the sweetness. So you don't have to add any refined sugar and top it off with a couple of handfuls of spinach. And you have a beautiful smoothie that's delicious and nutritious. And those greens, they've done studies to show that if you put greens into your fruit smoothie, it actually blunts your sugar and insulin spike. 
So that's one way to enjoy smoothies without having to worry about it kind of spiking your blood sugar. Okay. And the last one, um, beans. And the reason why we asked this one, because I really liked the uh, making beans cool again episode. Mm -hmm. And I was walking around saying cool beans all day. uh, (laughs) I was going to say, so tell us, what do you do with a bean or beans? Um, I mean, what can't you do with a bean? I don't even know where to start on this one. Okay, Pick Pick your best bean dish best bean dish i'm gonna go with a black bean and the reason i'm gonna choose a black bean is because a lot of people don't know that you can use black beans in a dessert and so you can get those black beans and you can make them into a brownie one thing to do you can make like black bean brownie energy balls you can also add sweet potato or applesauce in there to sweeten your brownies and you don't have to even use oil Yeah. I mean, they're super versatile. I mean, what can't you do with a bean? I've even put beans into waffles and they're so good. And I do have a good handout on beans, dryami.com forward slash (laughs) beans for those people that are interested in learning how to cook with beans. We've heard that beans are related to one of your favorite F words. Fiber. That's right. (laughs) And it's the best source of fiber. So a half a cup of beans on average has seven grams of fiber. So it's going to be your biggest bang for your buck when it comes to whole plant foods and getting your fiber in. So I love it when my patients are eating beans every day, at least once a day, that would be my goal. But if you're at zero, just start with several times a week. If you're not used to beans, because a lot of people worry about beans and flatulence and that kind of thing. Just start low and go slow. So even just a couple of tablespoons a day, do that for a week or two, then increase your dose. Your bacteria will adapt. Your gut bacteria will adapt. And that's why at the microbe museum, they have the flatulence, you know, thing, because that's what's happening in our gut. They're eating the fiber and then they're producing gases from that. So if you have gas after eating beans, you should be happy. That means that you just fed your gut bacteria and they're just so happy. They're thankful to you. My 13 year old son would be delighted to hear that it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I do a six bean chili which oh, I suspect yum. is perhaps not the thing to introduce people to beans to for the very first time. <laughs> Probably not the first time, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll put lots of links into the various uh, worksheets that you've produced and all those kind of things and uh, so that our listeners can go and uh, read more and we'll, put on, we'll recommend some uh, uh, particular episodes that we enjoyed that hopefully the listeners will. So really, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Metapod and taking some of our serious questions and some of our less serious questions. Really, appreciate your time thank you thank you so much i had a blast we hope you stay plantastic (laughs) i will (laughs) thank you again to dr yami for the time and enthusiasm that she shared with us today yeah we had a lot of fun talking to her we know she's super busy so hopefully someone cooked dinner for her that evening and speaking of cooking dinner wendy aren't you hungry now yes are you gonna make those snickers snacks kev uh, no, I'm more interested in the giant air fried chickpea that you need, actually. <laughs> okay, uh, maybe you're going to season it with Marmite. Well, every food on the planet tastes better with Marmite, Wendy. Uh, so, mm. Okay, maybe not every item, but it's pretty close. Okay, well, if you say so. Anyway, we've compiled some info and links for you in the show notes. While Kevin has plenty of ideas on how to add more Marmite to every meal, Dr. Yami has a lot of great suggestions on how to include more tasty plant foods in your diet. You can find her free recipes and resources at her website, dryami.com. That's right, including the free download, Let's Eat Beans, (laughs) four ways to incorporate more beans into your diet. So Metapod listeners, we challenge you to add more beans and F-bombs to your diet. Fiber and flatulence. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Eat your beans, people, and send us your bean stories. We'll put them in the Metapod mailbag. I mean, not the beans, but the story. (laughs) And um, they'll be included in an upcoming episode. Might be a stinky episode, Kev, but... um, Mm -hmm. You could maybe share your not-for-beginners six-bean chili recipe. For a fee, actually. I'll pretty much share anything, (laughs) obviously within the boundaries of taste and the legal framework of whatever country that you reside in, of course. Okay, I'll start building those web pages then. (laughs) 
next up on Metapod, we turn to cybercrime. It's a far cry from beans and green smoothies. Yeah, it really is. So we host Gene Lee and Jeff White of the Lazarus Heist on our next episode. The Lazarus Heist examines state-sponsored cybercrime, North Korea, and several significant cyber heists that North Korea is thought to have backed, including the hack into Sony Pictures in 2014. Gene and Jeff are well-respected journalists with expertise in North Korea and cybercrime, respectively. The Lazarus Heist was produced by the BBC World Service and is available at their website if you'd like to listen before our interview. It's an informative and fascinating story combining history, culture, technology, and international relations. Yeah, it really is. So thanks for listening, everybody, as always, and we'll see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.